This episode of the Higher Purpose Podcast was brought to you by Navigating North, a five-day virtual summit to help you discover your purpose in business, life, and leadership. Learn more at navigatingnorthsummit.com. All around the world, people are floundering. There's something missing, something more that they just can't grasp. Do you feel it too? Welcome to the Higher Purpose Podcast. Every week, host Kevin Monroe will help you navigate to your true north and flourish in faith, business, and life. You found us for a reason. Stay tuned to find out why. You're listening to the Higher Purpose Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Monroe, and this is episode 13. Joining me today is Jeff Goines. Jeff is the best-selling author of five books. The Art of Work was number four in his most recent book, Real Artists Don't Starve. I'm looking forward to this conversation. We're talking to Jeff just a couple of days after completing the Tribe Conference. And I hope Jeff takes us backstage and gives us an, a behind-the-scenes look at Tribe. Jeff Goins, thank you for joining us on the Higher Purpose Podcast. Thanks for, for having those, me, Kevin. Sure. For those that don't know you, and believe it or not, there are people that don't know Jeff Goins. Oh, yeah, I believe that. Yeah. <laughs> what are a couple of the essentials to, to get to know you? Sure. Well, if you don't know me, you're like most people in the world, so I'm used to that. Um, I am a writer, a writer, dad, husband. Uh, but I, I identify, you know, as somebody who most of my life I've been writing in one form or another, but that wasn't something that I considered myself until several years ago where I started calling myself a writer, started doing it every day and, uh, eventually quit my job, launched a business and started writing books and then helping other writers. And that's what I've been doing for the past six years now, uh, authoring books and helping writers through, events, online courses, and other educational resources. Okay. And speaking of events, you yes. just completed the Tribe Conference. Yeah. Yeah, we just wrapped it up. I heard so many awesome things about it. Calendar conflicts prevented me from coming this year, and I'm excited to see that it's in October. Next yeah. year, it's already on the calendar for me. Cool. So congratulations. But as you reflect on Tribe Conference, what thrills you most? So I, I like to say that every story of success is a story of community. And this was something that our community, uh, my blog readers, book readers, students in my online course, tribe writers, this is something they wanted. And one of the cool things about the internet is it connects people that otherwise wouldn't connect with each other, uh, like we're connecting today. But there are limitations to that, of course. And I think uh, the internet allows us to connect with each other in ways we've ne never have before, but it doesn't replace mm. real, live, in-person human interaction. And in some ways, uh, because we can connect to more people, it makes that in-person interaction even more valuable. And so as somebody who has literally connected tens of thousands of people to each other over the years through my blog and community, a lot of these people are saying, I, I want to have some sort of formal gathering where we can have an excuse to connect over a weekend. And obviously, you know, people were meeting and connecting in person themselves, and that's fun to see. 
but I realized um, our audience wanted some kind of conference, some kind of event, some formal way to bring people together. And Tribe is, uh, we like to call it a conference about people. Mm. And, and it is for writers and creatives. And it is, uh, you know, one part education, one part inspiration, and then one part practical application. And what that looks like is people sit at tables and say, hey, here's my struggle. And then everybody at the table jumps in and tries to help that person overcome that struggle, whether it's writing a book, launching a blog, overcoming the fear of not being enough. And one of our speakers uh, said it best. Um, He said, you know, there's two events going on at every conference. The first event is what's happening on stage. Uh And the second better event is what's happening down in the seats. And a speaker said that, a speaker said that. And I totally, as an event organizer, as somebody who uh, makes an income off of people saying, I want you to put this thing together and organize it, I completely agree with that. We are an excuse for people to come together and to get the help and support that they need to get to the next breakthrough. And uh, I, I love that you know we, we just formalized something that needed to happen And uh, I'm totally fine being the excuse for that community to spur somebody on to do something that they've never done before. Fabulous. Fabulous. Now, you said the community requested this. Yes. There are a lot of other things communities request of you. (laughs) How is it that you vet this through the lens of purpose to decide, hey, this is what we're doing? Yeah, this is... um this is a good question. It's something that I hear a lot about because um, people go, I'm really passionate about this or I'm really good about this or people expect this of me. And I don't think any one of those three characteristics are uh, enough to make you do something. And it really is kind of a question of calling. And I wrote about this in The Art of Work. I think calling is a messy process. It is a lifelong process. So anybody who goes, I found my calling and I'm good, I maybe distrust that a little bit. In my experience, you are constantly being called to a deeper purpose and it is a journey. I liken it to the word picture of you are wandering around in the woods. And and this is most of us. We're wandering around in the woods. We're completely lost. We can go in any direction we want, but none of them feel particularly purposeful. And I think finding your calling, as we as we call it, or your vocation, your purpose, whatever you want to call it, is a lot like finding a path. So you're stumbling through the woods and you stumble upon an actual path and you look at it and you go, wow, there's a design here. People, it, it's it, there's not a bunch of grass here. People have walked on this before. And now that I've found this path, I can trust that it's going to take me someplace good and I'm not going to get eaten by a bear or something. And yet I don't see where this ends, right? So I found the path. I see that people have gone before me. And if I follow this, it's going to take me somewhere, but I'm not quite sure because I can't see what's around that bend. And so it is sort of this equal measure of trust and confidence. I trust that this thing that I found is going to lead me someplace good. At the same time, I don't know what this process of purpose is going to entail. Anyway, all that to say, Kevin, I think a good way to know that you should do something, that that you should take the next step in finding your purpose, discovering your calling, or just whatever, that next job, that next major move in life is really a question of three things, not one thing. 
And, and as you mentioned, people are asking for this. So that's, that's the first thing. I call that demand. People have a request of you. They go, oh, you're so good at interviewing people. You should start a podcast. Or you're so good at this. You should do such and such. That's fine, but that in and of itself is not enough. So demand is one. Skill is another. You're really good at this. Uh, and then finally, passion. And uh, uh, the theologian Frederick Beekner likes to say that your vocation is the place where your deepest joy meets the world's deepest need. Yeah. And, and I, I just add another layer to that with skill. So your calling is the intersection of the answers to three questions. What do I love? That's your passion. Mm-hmm. What am I good at better than most people? That's your skill. And then what do people want? from me? What does the world need? And I make this very, very personal because we could go, you know, the world needs a cure to cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I may not have a role to play in that. I may not have the gifts or skills for that. But if somebody, but if I'm like the technology guy in my family and my father-in-law is always asking me, how does this, you know, smart TV work? Then, then that's, that's an indication of demand. But I may not be particularly passionate or skilled at that. So I go, that's not my calling. I'll do that for him, but I'm not going to do this for hundreds or thousands of right. other people. And so when we launched the Tribe Conference, it was me having this idea in the back of my mind, I'd really like to do an event at some point, but I'm not going to do it if people don't want it. And then people continually saying, we want it, we want it, we want it. And then I didn't know if I could do it. And that's okay. Like if you're going to try something, you don't know if you're going to be passionate about it or you're not going to be good at it, but there's a need for it. I'll do an experiment. I'll try it. I start with demand, not passion. And so we did it once just to see if we would do it. And it went pretty well. And so we did it again and it went even better. And this was year three. And we had people coming up to us saying this, I mean, dozens of people saying this is the the best conference that I've ever attended. I had one, one woman tell me, she goes, Jeff, I go to about 50 plus events a year. She's a speaker. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking just to the <laughs> Yeah. Those are the kind of customers I want. Yeah. <laughs> Big conference consumers. Um, yeah. She said, this is by far the mm. best event I have been to in my entire life. Wow. And I was like, Oh, it, it, truly, truly humbling, not to talk it up, but this was the year where I was like, wow, we have something special wow. and I feel a responsibility to steward this. Yeah. And, and it's not, I didn't create it by myself. Mm-hmm. It's like we got a bunch of people together and we all threw paint on this canvas and we hung it on, on the wall. And for the first two years, I was like, well, that's wrong and that's wrong and that could be better. And this year we hung it on the wall and I looked at it and said, yeah, that's pretty beautiful. And I want to keep adding paint to it. I want to keep, uh, you know, building on this canvas. So for me, that's the process. I'll try anything once, but to keep doing something, I have to love it. I have to be pretty good at it, better than most people. And, and there has to be a real need in the world for it. Okay. Well, now I'm, I'm confirmed for next year after this. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, I mean, it really was the first time where I was like, I'm going to own this. People love this. It's not for everybody, but for our little tribe of writers and creatives, um, it's, it is the thing that they need to help them get unstuck and take the next move. Well, now that's where I wanted to go and I'm right here. Is cool. What do you see happening or, or what really 
light your fire around seeing people take the next step or uh, how tribe serves and encourages people in their pursuit of purpose? So it's interesting um, because I think people do this, not just with an event, but they do this with a lot of things, a book, uh, anything that they typically pay money for. Mm -hmm. You buy a book, you sign up for a, a coach or a course or an event, and you want clarity. You think the problem is clarity. I don't, the problem is lack of clarity. I think I don't, I don't know what I don't know. And at the very beginning of the event this past weekend, um, I, we had a little Facebook group and I asked people ahead of time, what do you want to get out of this weekend? And somebody said clarity. Opening night, I said, you're not going to get clarity. And I love this story uh, that I, that I heard once. And I think it was first told by Brennan Manning, but he said he he was recounting a story where a journalist uh, goes and meets um, uh, Mother Teresa and says, Mother Teresa, I'd love for you to pray for me. She goes, okay, what would you like me to pray for? He says, I'd love for you to pray that I have clarity. I don't know. I have some decisions to make. I don't know what my next move is. Can you please pray that I'd have clarity? She said, no, I can't do that. He goes, why not? You're Mother Teresa. <laughs> she goes, because I've never had clarity. He goes, you never had clarity. You know, like your Mother Teresa, if you've never had clarity, we're all doomed. And she said, no, I've never had clarity. I've only ever had trust. And I will pray that you have trust. This was something that I learned when I was writing The Art of Work. Uh, I went and interviewed hundreds of people who had um, discovered their calling and they had taken their purpose, their vocation, and they had married it with their occupation in some way. They had turned it into a job, typically. And so they were doing like they were doing their life's work they were happy with it successful at it and they knew that this is what they were put on earth to do and i asked them i said when did you know when did you know that this is what you're supposed to do and almost everybody said i didn't i didn't know yeah. i just did it and the more i did it the more clear the path became and so i believe now that we're all waiting for clarity before we're willing to act and the reality is clarity comes with action. That, you, that you, yeah, you act your way into clarity. So to answer your question, Kevin, I think that what really excites me, if somebody's reading a book, coming to an event, even listening to this podcast, I don't want to hear things like this changed my life because, because usually it's a throwaway comment. Right. How? How? What did you do? I'd rather hear somebody say, I listened to this podcast and I did blank. Mm-hmm. I started a blog. I I went and, and bought that Brennan Manning book you talked about. I had that hard conversation with my wife, whatever it is, because that's action and action leads to clarity. And if you keep choosing action, you're going to keep finding clarity and you're going to keep moving in the direction that you need to move. And I mean, that's that's how we change our lives, one small step at a time. So I get really excited. And this was when we do the event, this is what we did last year, or this is what we did this year, uh, last weekend, is we said, look, you're going to get a lot of information. You're going to hear from a lot of speakers. We are intentionally trying to overwhelm you. Not in a bad way, mm-hmm. but we are trying to give you a big platter of options to choose from. Some things are going to resonate more than others. And yes, we want to inspire you. Yes, we want you to feed, we want you to leave here with your heart full. But your job here is to pick one thing yep. and do it. Yeah. Not to leave with a big 
long list of things to do. Your job is to leave here with a list of things done. And we tell them just do one thing. And if you leave here with one thing done, guess what? You're doing better than most people who go to conferences and have big notebooks and they say, I'm going to, I'm going to do all this stuff. And on the plane ride, you're like, I'm going to do all this stuff. You're like, well, I'm really tired. So I'm going to take a nap. And then you get home and this life that you've put on hold for three or five or seven days, you know, hits you and you never get to that stuff. And so we just want, we want people to, uh, I want people to come to an event. Uh, I want them to read a book. I want them to listen to an interview and pick one thing and do it. And if you do that, every podcast you listen to, every blog post you read, every book that you read, you just do one small thing. Uh, you're going to be doing better than most people and you're going to be creating momentum. I love this, Jeff. And in, in sessions, workshops I do, I preface people up front. One thing is all we're looking for you to get. Yeah. Here's what's the magic when you're the organizer, the presenter, speaker, whatever, is you have no idea or you have no control over that what, what that one thing is. Right. And the one thing may be something that wasn't actually said. Yeah. Kind of process this and come up with their one thing. And, and they come up to you and they go, Jeff, when you said this, <laughs> I don't remember saying that. But it's yeah. what they heard. And, and that one thing. Yeah, I love I used to, I mean, I've gone to a lot of conferences, both as an, a participant and as a speaker, mm. and I would walk away with tons of notes, and I never did yes. anything with them. So yep. synthesizing it to the one thing and, and just pick one, I love it, love it, love it. I actually, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but I think this may be helpful. Um, I uh, learned this from a friend. I was at a conference, and I'd been going to a lot of conferences, being overwhelmed. In fact, I kept going to conferences when I was thinking about, should I, should I do more writing? Like, how do I do this? I went to three conferences in a row uh, that were basically the same thing. Here's how to find your dream job. Here's how to find your passion. Here's how to do it. And I kept going. I kept taking notes. And it was confusing more than anything because I wasn't doing anything with it. Because yeah. you'd hear one piece of advice. You go, I've got to do that. That sounds great. I love that story about somebody's success. And you're going to do what they did. And then three weeks later, you'd go to something else and you'd hear basically contradictory advice from somebody who was equally successful. And you're like, now I've got to do what they did. I've got to start a blog. I've got to start a podcast. Now I need to write a book. And it's just, you know, get all these ideas jumbled. So I was at an event sitting next to a friend of mine, a very inspiring conference, a lot of keynote speakers, a lot of community, not a ton of like practical go do this. You know, you sort of had to elicit that yourself from the experience. And I saw him taking notes, you know, we were all taking notes. And in the middle of a session on day two of a three-day conference, he got up and walked out. Hmm. And I saw him at lunch. And I said, hey, man, uh, you missed so-and-so's talk. He goes, yeah, that, you know, that's okay. Um, and I said, what were you doing? And he said, you know, I have spent thousands of dollars in the past couple of years on conferences. And I can't really point to anything that I've done as a result of going to these conferences. And it's because I'm getting information overload and not doing anything with it. I've learned things, but I haven't done anything. And he said, so I made a vow to myself here on out. I'm not going to go to a conference uh, and leave with a bunch of notes. I'm going to leave with a handful of things done. Mm -hmm. And his goal, he said, my goal here is to do three things. And, and as soon as I hear something that I know is a nugget, I have given myself permission to step outside and to call, he's a business owner, to call my team, text my assistant, send that email so that it's done. And wow. it could be something like, 
oh, you know, somebody said, whatever, get a therapist. So, you know, text assistant, you know, schedule therapy session next week or whatever. And I love that discipline of I'm not just going to, I'm not just going to sit in the waves of information and, and remain passive. If I hear something and we gave our attendees permission to do this, if you hear something that connects with you and you know, like, this is your thing that you've got to do, go do it. Step outside, make that call, send that email, do that thing. And it needs to obviously be kind of a small thing, not like write a book. Go do it so that when you go home to your family or spouse or business partner and they go, how was the conference? You don't go, oh, it was great. I learned a bunch of things. You go, it was great. Here's what I did. Yeah. That's rare. Yeah. And it reminds me of what Paul, Paulo Coelho said. Yeah. You know, there's only one way to learn. Mm. It's through action. Yeah. That's right. It's not through knowledge. It's not through talking about it. It's taking the step, applying, moving forward. Yep. And so I love, I mean, you even created the uh, atmosphere, the environment, gave people permission to get up and go take action now. Not, Mm -hmm. Not just take action next week. Right. Take action now. Yeah, and people did. Awesome. Yes. Awesome. All right, your path to purpose, Jeff, more of a straight line or a zigzag? A zigzag. Good, good. <laughs> We're company here. Yeah. Dan Miller, our friend, yes. straight line is what he tells me. He said it was wow. a straight line. I'm like, wow, I'm jealous. Well, maybe I'm not. But I, I know very few people for whom it has been a straight line. Mm-hmm. Who are some of the heroes or mentors that inspired you on the journey? Yeah, Dan is one of those people. Uh, I love his story, and um, he has challenged me. Uh, in fact, he he spoke at our conference this, this past week, and he had this great talk about investing in yourself, and he talked about buying this record, The Strangest Secret, when he was a teenager, and it was like 15 or $20. And But, you know, we don't think about how this was. I mean, this was like 50 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, uh, over 50 years ago. And... Uh, he said, he said, Jeff, uh, back then, uh, going to the movie theater was $2. Mm. And, and so I'm like doing the math, adjusting for inflation. It's basically equivalent of $100 to $150 that he spent on this program. And I said, how did you? And he was a farmer's kid. I said, how did you have the money to do this? He goes, I don't know. I don't remember. He says, I guess I just saved and saved and saved for it. And that has always challenged me. That story, you know, continues to challenge me. He says, you need to invest 3% of your income in personal development. And he's continuing to do that. He, he uh, paid to come to my conference last year. He bought a ticket. I was like, you bought a ticket? Uh, you know, like you're my friend. I probably would have just given you a ticket. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that's not how he operates. If you don't invest in it, you're not going to value it. And you're you're going you're gonna to get more out of it if you, you know, pay your hard-earned money for it. And that's a lesson that I've learned and continue to learn from him. And he says, invest 3% of your income up to $50,000 a year. And then once you cross that $50,000 a year in income, uh, raise it to 5% and continue to every single year, you should be investing 5% of your income in growth. And Dan likes to say, uh, as soon as I'm done learning, just dig a hole and throw me in it because I'm done. And so he was one of those mentors. He lives here in Nashville, as I'm sure you know. And uh, Michael Hyatt was a very influential uh, voice. Uh, so was my first boss, Seth Barnes, uh, who I worked with in ministry for almost seven years. He was the first person who taught me how to be mentored. 
Hmm. I always kind of understood mentoring as like, if you are my mentor, Kevin, um, I go to you and you give me your wisdom. And it's a, it's a, it's a position of receiving for me. It's a fairly passive experience. And the first time I sat down with Seth, he was my boss, but we would carve out time after work to interact in person where he would mentor me. And he would go, okay, what do you want to talk about? And I would go, I don't, I don't know. He was okay. So step one, uh, always bring the agenda. Bring the agenda. Yeah. And, and it's your job to um, find the time uh, and, 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 and figure like your, it's your job. He said, go talk to my assistant, figure out a time that'll work for my schedule. Cause I would go, when do you want to meet next? And he would go, no, no, no. Like you need to bring the agenda. You need to schedule it. You are 100% in charge of this meeting. And I just show up and answer your questions. And he wasn't being rude or mean. He was helping me understand how this works. Uh, and he says, this won't work unless you really, really want it. So bring the agenda. And I said, okay. So he said, I go, Hey, let's talk about such and such. And he starts talking and I'm, I'm going, uh-huh, uh-huh, you know, listening. That's great. That's great. He goes, um, are you writing this down? And I like clearly wasn't. I didn't have a notebook or anything. I said, uh, no. He said, you should write this down. And I was like, okay, okay, I'll write this down. And I like, found something to write, you know, write it down with. And then at the very end of the, the meeting, he said, what are you going to do with those notes? I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reread them. I'm going to do them. He said, okay, anything else? Uh, he said, I said, I, I, no. And he said, <laughs> he said, you need to email me those notes and tell me what you're going to do with them. Mm. And he said, just a tip. This is step three. Anytime you meet with somebody, anytime, uh, and you've got something to receive from them, you need to be taking notes. And as soon as the meeting is over, email them the notes, tell them what you got out of that experience. Wow. And every time after that, that we met, I would take notes and I would email him the notes and say, here's what I got out of this. And, and I mean, that helps in a business setting where you go, here are my takeaways from our time together. Did I get it right? Uh, you know, and you have something in writing versus you said this. It also helps in a mentoring relationship where you're recording the lessons that you're learning and you're giving feedback to your mentor saying, here's what I got from this. Because as, as you probably know, Kevin, as a mentor, you're giving, 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 and you're hoping that they're getting the points. And communication is two-way. You have to send something and you also have to receive it. And, um, I learned that from him. And so the first time I started meeting some of these people, uh, Michael Hyatt, Dan Miller, um, and you know, Ken Davis is another local guy that, um, has made a big impression on me. Uh, I would send them notes like right after 15 minutes after the meeting saying, here's what I learned from our time together. Cause it's, it's, it's better than a thank you note. Cause it's, it's showing them that you took their time seriously. Okay, folks. For someone, <laughs> this is your action item from yes. this session. Mm. This is a change of behavior you need to make. Right. So let's just drive that home a moment. Let's talk about mindset before mm-hmm. our time gets away from us. Yes. Uh, in Real Artists Don't Starve, you wrote, we can't change our lives until we change our minds. Mm-hmm. So what's been one of the biggest mindset shifts that you've made? It helped you on your journey. You know, there's that whole, whole uh, Henry, old Henry Ford quote, if you, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. Mm-hmm. And I have found that people who consistently say, this will never work for me are right. You know, like it ends up not working out for them. Yeah. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. And for years I said that. I said, oh, I can never make any money as a writer um, 
before I was, um, before I had a blog and I was pursuing writing seriously, I was a marketing director at a nonprofit, um, and, and working with writers, creating content, understanding the internet and social media and how ideas spread today created this appetite for me to share my own ideas and to write more. But before that I was a, a professional musician and I use air quotes with that professional. Um, I toured the country for a year uh, with a band uh, all over North America and we went to Taiwan for a month. We were big in Taiwan and um, I think we made about $8,000 that year as a band. And the way that we made it work financially is we would stay in people's homes and, and they would host us for free and um, you know give us a casserole and send us on our way. In every, almost every place that we stopped, I'd hear from a well-meaning adult and they would, you know, because I was 23 when this was happening and they go, hey, it's great that you're doing this while you're young because when you get older, life just sort of happens to you and you can't make any money playing music. Wow. wow. And, and they're like, I, I believe them and, and I don't fault them right. for that. But it wouldn't be till, you know, uh, almost a decade later where I realized that's not always true. In fact, I think this whole idea of a starving artist in many ways is a myth. Now, a myth is a story that we tell ourselves that helps us make sense of our reality. So in the Bible, the story of how God creates the heavens and the earth is called the creation myth. As J.R. Tolkien once told an atheist friend of his, C.S. Lewis, he said, some myths are true. Mm. So we can have true and untrue myths. It's just a story that we tell ourselves that helps us make sense of our reality. In America, we have patriotic myths. You know, George Washington chopped down the cherry tree and then, you know, uh, you know confessed about it. That's a myth that, that speaks to the character of, of a patriot and also to the country. And, and some of these things are true and some of them are not true. But what's fascinating about a myth is if you believe it, enough, it becomes true in your life. Yeah. So when I was a child and my parents told me that a fat man named Santa Claus came and brought us uh, presents every year for Christmas, I believed it. And as a kid, like that was as real to me as our conversation right now. And so there are stories that we tell ourselves uh, that become true in our lives. So in my experience, telling myself, I'll never make any money writing uh, nobody will ever care about my work. That that was true for seven years. I would launch blogs and nobody would read them. I would try to write articles and sell them and nobody would buy them. And I, I could not make a living as a writer. And a bunch of things happened when I was about 28, uh, 27, 28 years old that year. And they all kind of collided in this really incredible year of my life where um, we got pregnant with our first child. I had this strong desire to start writing. And then uh, I had a, I mentioned I went to a number of conferences and joined a professional coaching group. And there were all these voices in my life and it all pointed to writing. And the conversation that tipped everything for me was when somebody asked me what my dream was. Mm. This is at the end of uh, 2010. And I said, I don't have a dream. And it's because I was tired of trying stuff and failing. So I was like, I think it's just better to not have a dream. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me and he, and, he, and I had known this person about two months, not very long. And he said, really? Cause I, I would have thought that your dream was to be a writer. And, and as soon as he said that it hit me, it was like a tactile, tangible kind of experience. 
And I said, yeah, you're right. I guess I'd like to be a writer someday. He looked at me and he'd been through a lot of therapy. So he you know, had a way of saying things that were incisive. Uh, he said, Jeff, you don't have to want to be a writer. You are a writer. You just need to write. And he didn't know this until years later. I was telling the story and he like listened to a podcast. Um, his name is Paul. And he said, I didn't know that the next day you started writing. And that's true. I, the next day, I had been writing in you know yeah. fits and starts, but the next day I started writing at 5 a.m. because I was like, this is the magic hour that writers write. And I wrote every day, every single day without fail for the next year. Mm-hmm. And that was the number one habit that got me from a place of feeling stuck to not being stuck. And so I think, uh, Kevin, that uh, activity follows identity. Before you can go do something, you have to become someone. And so if we want to change our lives, we first have to change our mindset. And for me, that meant practically deciding mm-hmm. I'm going to be a writer. And in order to do what writers do, I have to think like writers think. I have to believe it before I come it. Not fake it till you make it, but believe it till you become it. It, it, it is an act of yeah. faith. Yeah. And and it requires belief, but also action. I think you have to believe, behave, and then become. And and I wrote about this in Real Artists Don't Starve. I don't think artists, whatever that means to you, you know, I know people who are creative entrepreneurs who are artists. I know people who are athletes where their sport is their art. And I know writers and musicians and, and so forth who are artists. But if you want to become an artist, you don't have to be born with a paintbrush in your hand. You have to choose to become that thing that you want to be. And it's not a one-time decision. It is a daily decision. Derek Sivers says that every day you have to keep earning your title. I can't write a book 20 years ago and still call myself a writer today. I'm just somebody who wrote a book once. Hmm. And so if I want to be a writer, I have to keep writing. I have to keep abiding in this identity. And for me, it was really important for me to understand I am a writer. Like I'm not trying to become this thing. I am this. Now what do writers do? And that's what I did. Wow. So I'm going to pause right there and say thank you because you inspired me Hmm. to actually say I am a writer a couple of years ago. That's awesome. uh, Community. Before we, before we wrap up, let's talk about community a moment because we both believe community is absolutely essential. Yes. And, and you said earlier in this, every story of success is in fact a story of community. Mm-hmm. So what have you discovered about the significance of community? Yeah, I used to just use the one word community. And I think it's, it's, you know, it's a good place to start. I think community happens three different ways and, and these are, can be considered steps, I suppose. Um, The first part is you have to find a scene. A scene is a physical place where people gather who are like-minded and uh, are doing similar work and and want similar things. That's a scene. It is a place. It could be a conference. It could be a city. But it is an actual physical place that people come together and they connect over similar ideas with similar goals and aspirations. So first you have to find a scene, find your scene. And if you can't find one, you have to create one. But your best work will not come about in isolation. It will be the result of a collaborative community. I believe this with 
my whole heart. Uh, there's a researcher named Keith Sawyer who demonstrates this. There's a bunch of great books about this, but a really easy to read book is Group Genius by Keith Sawyer, where he talks about everything from Edison to you know the inventions of Thomas Edison to uh, the birth of psychotherapy and the modern psychology movement to literature. It was all birthed out of community. And, and these people met in physical places and helped each other with their work. Every single week, uh, I meet with a group of about 11 other men who live in Nashville who are uh, artists and photographers and restaurant owners and lawyers and a bunch of different uh, industries, but we all have uh, you know similar goals and we're at a similar place in life. We meet every single week for an hour and a half for a weekly mastermind meeting. It it is no coincidence that I joined that group uh, right when my blog was starting, right when I had a fledgling business. Hmm. And they were there when I launched my business and, and, and quit my job. They were there to affirm me when I decided I'm going to do this full time. And, and when I decided to write the next book or hire the first employee, they were guiding me through all these decisions. First thing you need is just a scene, a place where you can go find like-minded people. Second, scenes beget networks. A, a network is a loose collection of people who are connected. They're not best friends, but they're connected. Um, and you can stay connected without the physical place. So in the 1920s, when Ernest Hemingway moves to Paris, he connects with the expat community of uh, artists and uh, authors and creatives from all around the world. Uh, and he leaves there. He lives there for less than 10 years and he never really moves back there. And he stays connected with those people that are instrumental in his success and his becoming one of the most influential authors of the 20th century. For the rest of his life, he stays connected with those people. That's the power of a network. It's maintaining connections uh, even when you don't live in the same city. And you know somebody that I know and they know somebody that I don't know. And a friend of a friend of a friend is some connection in the network that can help me, you know, uh, find the next opportunity, get to the next level, et cetera. So that's kind of the second part of community are these loose collections of people that are created from a scene that you join. And then the third step or layer is the collaboration. Uh, uh, One person calls these collaborative circles. And this is uh, what I talked about. These are your masterminds. These are the people that you do business with, that you collaborate with. These are the voices that are advising you. uh, And they're typically peer-led voices. And, and, the, and you are connecting with them on a regular basis, weekly or monthly. You are getting feedback and advice from this collaborative group. And, um, you know, I, I mentioned kind of the, uh, the fruit in my life of that. So that's what community looks like to me today. So if you go, I want a mastermind group, start with a scene that will lead to a network which will allow you to find the right group of people who are not just like-minded, but you are of one mind. Because that's what a mastermind is. It's bringing a bunch of minds together to create one master brain, as it were, one mastermind that makes the sum of these individual parts greater than, you know, it, you know, it, it makes the whole collaboration is greater than the sum of its parts. Awesome conversation. A, a final question here. Yes. Um, at any, this is your quote. At any point in the story, you are free to reimagine the narrative you are living. So, what's the hope 
you can offer someone who feels stuck right now, who's listening and, and they just feel stuck in some facet of life. What's my wife, help them reimagine? My wife and I were talking about this recently um, about how you can get sort of stuck in the same rhythm in the same place. And, and the thing that got you to this place that you're now stuck in was typically a good thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe you're an empty nester, you know, and this is the town that you raised your kids in, but your kids are gone and you're still here living off of, you know, memories from 20 years ago. Uh, or maybe, you know, your dad was a plumber and his dad was a plumber. And so you've got to be a plumber and it just made sense. And, and there was a certain point where like, this was a really great job to have in college, but now you're 29 and going, but I really, really want to dance or, or paint or start an online business or whatever. Uh, and, and I was reminded, I'm reminded of that movie Up, that Pixar movie, where you've got this elderly gentleman uh, who's a widower and he's in the same old house and, and the whole town around him is changing. But he's, he's stuck in memories that were from 20 years ago. And he and his wife had these incredible memories, but he realizes, you know, this is the whole crux of the movie, they wanted to go on this adventure that they never went on. And he's still alive. He's, you know, his, he's still ticking. And there's, so there's still time for him to go on that adventure. And I like to say, you know, you're not done until you're dead. I, I met this woman, Jody Noland, who found her vocation at 58 years old. Hmm. And, and so my encouragement is what she told me, because I have no right telling somebody who's 50, 60, 70 to go chase this thing that they've always wanted to chase. Um, but I do believe this not just because I've experienced this, but because I've seen countless other people much wiser and more experienced than me say, this is true. And one of those people was Jody Nolan. And at 58 years old, Jody Nolan starts a, an organization called Leave Nothing Unsaid, which is a, um, a business that uh, does workshops and teaches people at any stage of life how to write letters to their loved ones. And this came out of a lot of personal pain for her. Um, she saw a friend of hers on his deathbed write some letters to his daughters, and then he died, and, and the daughters had these letters to cherish. And she saw the impact that it made on uh, this man's children's lives. And so when her own husband gets cancer and, and is, is on his respective deathbed, and she's begging him to write letters and he refuses, it breaks her heart. In fact, she had this idea and she had started to toy around with it. Like, I want to create this thing called Leave Nothing Unsaid and help people do what my friend did because we don't do a good job as humans telling each other what we think about one another very often, family members, friends, et cetera. Wouldn't it be great if we did this before we died? Because uh, we can't really do it afterwards. And her husband died and he didn't write any letters. And at the funeral, their daughter came up to her and said, did he write me a letter? Mm. And she said, no. And it broke her heart. And she had already started ordering the workbook. She had started to do some of this stuff that she wanted to do. And she quit after that. She, she boxed all the boxes up. She sent everything away and she started grieving. And a year later, somebody called her and says, you know, our, our mother is dying and she, we think she'd like to you know, write some letters to family members. We know that you did this for a while. Do you have any of those workbooks? And she had one, wow. she had one workbook left and she sent it to them. She said, I remember the courier. They sent a courier over to come pick it up because it was so urgent. And then the mother died not too long after that. And um, her children called Jody and thanked her. And Jody just started weeping. And she, she started it up again. And she started leave nothing unsaid. 
And I said, how did you know? This is what I asked her. How did you know that you needed to do this? And of course she said, I didn't know. And I didn't know that this was going to work. But I, I, I decided that I was going to do this when the fear of not doing this became greater than the fear of failure. And so my encouragement is, is if you're thinking of, I'd like to be an artist or I'd like to start that business and it feels too late. I didn't go to college for this. This isn't what I've been doing for the past 30 years. It is never too late as long as you're willing to change your mindset. But I think the thing that gets us over that hump of trying it, not being guaranteed success, is that the good fear of what happens if you don't do this. You should be afraid of that. Mm-hmm. If Jody never dove into this, leaned into her fear, um, then she never would have touched literally thousands of people's lives. But there's failure too. Like she failed to persuade her husband to do it and that broke her heart. And so you have to let the good fear of what happens if I don't do this, push out the bad fear of what if I fail? And that's the only thing that allows us to change anything from our habits to our health to our mindset is the pain of standing still has to finally be greater than the discomfort of moving forward. Wow. The pain of standing still has to become greater than the discomfort of moving forward. Mm -hmm. Well, there you have it. (laughs) Before we leave, we got to close one loop. You mentioned a Brennan Manning book. Yes. Without a title. I love Brennan Manning, which is the book. If somebody's sitting there, what was that Brennan Manning book? Which the one? book is the book is Ruthless Trust, I believe is the name. Ruthless Trust. And it's a book, it's a book just about that. You know, you're never gonna have clarity, but you can have trust. You can trust the process. And if folks want more of Jeff Goins in their life, where do we point them? <laughs> Go to my blog, goinswriter.com, G-O-I-N-S writer.com. My blog is a place where writers and creatives can get inspired to do their best creative work. And there's some free resources there when you sign up for my email newsletter list. Again, that's Goins, G-O-I-N-S, writer.com. Jeff, it has been a delight to have you with us on the Higher Purpose Podcast. Thanks, Kevin. It was totally my pleasure. Wow, Jeff, thanks for joining us. Here are my takeaways from this conversation. Number one, I loved the mini course on mentoring. That was amazing. Remember, Always bring the agenda to your mentoring conversations. Number two, clarity comes with action. I meet so many people looking for clarity. Get started. Take a step. Clarity will come as you go. And then number three, the three B's. They kind of tie to that. But believe, behave, and become. And finally, the conversation we had about the fear of not trying actually displacing the fear of failure. Wow, that's insightful, and I'm sure you might relate to that. Hey, next week, be sure to join us. We're going to flip the script, and I'm going to be interviewed. We're going to be talking about Navigating North that comes up in just a couple of weeks, October 30th through November 3rd. Stay tuned for more on that, and remember, you were meant for more. Why settle for less? Are you ready for more purpose in work and in life? What if you could learn from personal, intimate conversations with people who are living their lives passionately and purposefully and making a massive impact doing it? For five days, you can. 
Get more information and your free ticket at navigatingnorthsummit.com.